The title of the message this morning is Getting Old to the Glory of God. And you will see two or three verses in here that are preeminently relevant to that theme. Verse 7 of Psalm 71. I have been as a poor tent to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace. May they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day. For their number is past knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So, even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Amen. Getting old to the glory of God means getting old in a way that makes God look glorious. It means living and dying in a way that shows God to be the all-satisfying treasure that he is. So, it would include, for example, not living in ways that make the world look like your treasure. Which means that most of the suggestions that this world offers us concerning our retirement years are bad ideas. They call us to live in a way that would make this world look like our treasure. And that means God is belittled. Getting old to the glory of God means resolutely resisting the typical American dream of retirement. It means being so satisfied with all that God promises to be for us in Christ, that we are set free from the kind of cravings that produce so much uselessness and emptiness in the retirement years. Instead, knowing that we have an infinitely satisfying and everlasting inheritance just over the 
horizon of this life makes us zealous in our few remaining years to spend ourselves in sacrifices of love rather than the accumulation of comforts. Consider the way Raymond Lull <coughs> ended his days. Raymond Lull was born in the year 1235 to a wealthy family on the island of Mallorca off the coast of Spain. He was a dissolute youth until he had several visions which compelled him to follow Christ. At first he thought he would enter the monastic life and then Christ so gripped him for the Muslim peoples of northern Africa that he gave himself to be a missionary in what is today Algeria. I want to read you a couple of paragraphs from the story of his life written by Samuel Zwemer to show you how he finished his course. His pupils and friends naturally desired that he should end his days in the peaceful pursuit of learning and the comfort of companionship. He had come home under some duress and had taught Oriental languages and Arabic until he was 79. So that's where we're picking it up. Such, however, was not Lull's wish. In Lull's contemplations, we read, men are accustomed to die, O Lord, from old age, the failure of natural warmth and the excess of cold. But thus, if it be thy will, thy servant would not wish to die. He would prefer to die in the glow of love, even as thou wast willing to die for him. The dangers and difficulties that made Lull shrink back in 1291 only urged him forward to North Africa once more in 1314. His love had not grown cold, but burned the brighter. He longed not only for the martyr's crown, but also once more to see his little band of believers in Africa. Animated by these sentiments, he crossed over to Bugia in Algeria on August 14, and for nearly a whole year labored secretly among the little circle of converts whom his previous visits he had won to the Christian faith. At length, weary of seclusion and longing for martyrdom, he came forth into the open market and presented himself to the people as the same man whom they had once expelled from their town. It was Elijah showing himself to a mob of Ahabs. Lull stood before them and threatened them with divine wrath if they persisted in their errors. He pleaded with love but spoke plainly the whole truth. The consequences can be easily anticipated. Filled with fanatic fury at his boldness and unable to reply to his arguments, the populace seized him, dragged him out of town, and there, by the command or at least the connivance of the king, he was stoned to death on the 30th of June, 1315. 
Raymond Law was 80 years old when he died for Christ. Nothing could be further from the American dream of retirement than the way Lowell chose to live his last days. Nothing. In John 21, 19, Jesus told Peter, quote, by what kind of death he was to glorify God. It's a strange phrase. By what kind of death he was to glorify God. Of course, he had stretched out his hands and was predicting his crucifixion, which happened upside down. There are evidently different ways to die. But for Christians, all of them are to be performed in a way that makes God look glorious and not the world look valuable. That's what it means to grow old and die to the glory of God. You grow old in a way. You choose a path of life that makes God look like your treasure, that makes heaven look like your home, that makes Christ look like your treasure. And you die in a way that makes the world look worthless. So growing old to the glory of God means using whatever strength, Whatever eyesight, whatever hearing, whatever mobility, whatever resources we have left to treasure Christ and in that joy to serve people, that is, to seek to bring them with us into everlasting delight in Jesus. Serving people in the overflow of treasuring Christ, makes Christ look great. Now, one of the great obstacles to getting old to the glory of God is the fear that we will not persevere in this treasuring of Christ and this serving of people. We won't make it. Something will happen to our heart. We will drift away and we'll treasure security or family or health or life more than we treasure Christ. We fear this. We won't say with Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have. Finish it. Yes. Loved his appearing. Paraphrase it. Treasured Christ so much you want him back. People who don't want him back don't believe in him. Treasuring Christ is part of the good fight and the finished course and the kept faith. It's what faith is. It's not an icing on the cake of faith. 
If you don't want Christ, you don't believe in Christ. And he said that at the end of his life, that it had happened. He, he did want him. And he had fought. And he had finished. And he had kept the faith. And the Lord would reward him. And the question is, will we? Can we? A, a huge obstacle to persevering is the fear that we won't. And here's the reason. Here's the reason why fearing that we won't persevere in treasuring him and loving people is an obstacle to persevering. And the reason is this. There are two deadly ways that so many people choose to overcome this fear. You see the fear rising in your heart that you might not persevere in treasuring Christ and you might not persevere in loving people. And then you opt for this or this way of overcoming the fear and they're both suicidal. So I want to try to address those two deadly mistakes and then talk about the biblical way of persevering and getting old to the glory of God. First, the mistake of solving the fear problem by saying, you really don't have to persevere. That's the way grace is. You don't have to persevere in faith and in love. That's mistake number one. Mistake number two is, oh yes, you must persevere in faith and in love. And you don't know until you do that he's 100% for you. And you have to use your efforts to last and find out at the end if he's for you. That's deadly. So let's talk about number one first. The mistake that says, you don't need to persevere. Grace means you don't have to love people and trust and treasure Christ to the end. You don't need to. Once saved, always saved, whether you love people or believe or treasure him or not. Mark 13, 13, Jesus said, You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is something that you strive into. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Galatians chapter 6, verse 8. 
The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Notice, there are two reapings, alternatives. One is eternal life and the other is corruption. So we know that the meaning of corruption is the opposite of eternal life, which means hell. That's what's at stake in verse 8 of Galatians 6. It's not some kind of secondary level of heaven, some reward thing. This is whether you're there or not. So verse 9 becomes very important then. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we shall reap. Context, eternal life. If we do not give up. So, I conclude from those three verses and many others, this solution to the fear problem is a bad idea. A deadly suicidal teaching in the church that you don't have to persevere in treasuring Christ and loving people. You do. If you want to be in heaven, you persevere to the end. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. God chose you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification, not around it. God chose you to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Love and trust to the end if you want to go to heaven. So, it's a tragic mistake to teach, believe that perseverance is optional for salvation at the last day. That's mistake number one, and I want to warn you against it. Mistake number two is that we try to solve the fear problem that we might not in our older age persevere by saying, oh yes, we must indeed persevere and we must so work striving that in the last day we might find out whether or not he has been 100% for us. And until then, you don't know. And you should, in your strength, do all you can to obey him and thus garner his favor now and at the last day. That's deadly. They say, yes, you get started with grace and you get started with faith, but 
This living of the Christian life and this expectation of passing muster at the judgment is another thing. It's another level than the way you began. What's wrong with that? The error is revealed by asking this question and then answering it carefully from the Bible. When does God become totally, irrevocably for you? Not 99%, for you. When does that happen? Is it at the end of the age, at the last day, when he has had the chance now to look back over our whole life, measure it, and decide on the basis of it, that it is worthy of his being 100% for us? The answer to that question is no. That's not when it happens. God does not become 100% for you at the end of your life. What the Bible teaches is that God becomes 100% irrevocably. I hope you know that word. Irrevocably, you might pronounce it. Never to be revoked. God becomes 100% irrevocably for us the moment we are justified. That is... The moment we see Christ as a beautiful Savior and in that instant receive him as our substitute punishment and our substitute perfection. All of God's wrath and all of God's condemnation that we deserve was poured out on Jesus. All of God's demands for perfection were fulfilled by Jesus. The moment, by grace, you see that treasure and receive him that way, his death counts for your death. His condemnation counts for your condemnation. His perfection counts as your perfection. And God, in that instant, becomes 100% irrevocably, totally for us forever. Romans 3.28 We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 5.1 Looking back, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. We now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So in Christ Jesus, 
in union with Christ Jesus, by faith alone, at a point in time, we receive all that God is for us in him. And he is totally, 100%, irrevocably for us. And the implications of that for perseverance are spelled out crystal clear in Romans 8, 31 to 35. If God is for us, implying he most certainly is, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who is raised. Who is interceding with the Father for us? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Now tell me the answer to that question. Nobody. That's the right answer. Thank you for being bold. Nobody can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, we do not wait to the end of our lives to find out if he is 100% irrevocably for us. Now mark this, this is the conclusion of this point. Perseverance is not the means by which we get God to be for us. It is the effect of the fact that he is already for us. That's the gospel. If you get it turned around, you will commit spiritual and eternal suicide. You cannot ever make God be for you by your good Christian works. Because your good Christian works are the fruit of his being for you. Paul has a way of talking about that. He says, by the grace of God, this is 1 Corinthians 15.10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I worked. I persevered. I fought the fight. I finished the course. Nevertheless, it was not I, but Christ or grace that was with me because I'm being bought and he's 100% on my side. Does that produce laziness? It does not. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling does not entice God to be for you and work on your behalf. It is the effect 
of God's being for you and working on your behalf. And the sign and the demonstration that you are in Christ and he is on your side. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Romans 15, 18. If we are able to do anything for Christ, any measure of obedience, any millimeter of perseverance, it does not get God on our side. It's because God got us on his side and is 100% totally, irrevocably, eternally for us. Any whiff of holiness in your life is an evidence He's on your side totally. If every exertion you make in the discipline of perseverance is a work of God, then these exertions do not make God become 100% for you. They signify that he is and they are the result of it. He's for you because you are in Christ. You cannot improve on the perfection of Christ. You cannot improve upon the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ. So if by faith alone and by grace alone you are in Christ, then God is as much for you now as he will ever be or could ever be. Unless you believe that someday when you get a little better, you will add to the perfections of Christ as the ground of God's being for you. Watch out, lest you rob Jesus of all his glory or any of his glory. We are in Christ not by exertions, but by receiving him as our sacrifice and perfection and treasure. It is a passive gift-receiving, not an active performance. We're not negotiating here with God to get into Christ. We are seeing for the first time the glorious gospel, of Christ crucified, risen, reigning, beautiful, infinitely valuable, and that is so compelling, we simply receive. And in the receiving, we are folded into Christ. And we are now one with Christ. The key to getting old, to the glory of God, the key to persevering in old age is keep finding Christ as your highest treasure. Keep seeing him. Keep receiving him. Keep welcoming him. Keep resting in him. Keep valuing him 
as your supreme treasure in this world. This is not mainly a fight to do. This is mainly a fight to delight. The world would have your delights. Christ demands your delights. And faith receives Christ as our delight, our treasure, our all-satisfying King and Savior, bread, water, wine. Oh, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, you who have no money. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. That's the way you get saved. So how do you get rid of the fear of not persevering? Not those two ways. Not saying, you don't have to persevere. Grace. You don't have to believe and love people to the end. That's bad. And the other way, oh yes, you have to persevere because out there is a judgment waiting and you don't know how it's going to turn out. Because you don't know if he's 100% irrevocably, totally for you yet. And it all hangs on this to get him to be that way for you. That's wrong. So what's right? Spurgeon says, God kisses away the fear of aging with his promises. Promises like this. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. Not, will say it doesn't matter whether it gets completed. I am sure that he who began a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Christ. You will not be left to yourself. Promises like this, 1 Corinthians 1, 8. He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It just doesn't get any better than that. That's a big kiss. Jude one twenty four. He is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. God will do that. Or, perhaps the most theologically significant for me is Romans 8.30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also, tell me. I'll give you another quiz. This is not a trick question. I want a loud answer. True or false? Okay. I didn't think of saying this. I'm going to think of how to say it. Between justification, between being justified and being glorified, some people 
who are justified fall out and don't make it. True or false? Yes, that's right. Nobody is missing in this golden chain between justification and glorification, and we have been justified. Therefore, perseverance is necessary. That sobers us. That's why you get words like fear and trembling. And it is certain for all who are in Christ. The works we do on the path of love do not win God's favor. They result from God's favor. Christ won God's favor. Christ won God's favor. And we receive him by faith alone. And then we love as the overflow, the demonstration, the sign, the evidence of this faith. The key to growing old to the glory of God going to make God look glorious is to believe him, to trust him, to be satisfied in him, to treasure him. He must be our treasure. You can't look at this glorious work of Christ and say, oh, that's nice. I suppose I don't want to go to hell. I don't particularly care about his coming back right now. I've got a good plan for my life, Jesus. But if he's a good ticket that I can keep in my back pocket and sit on, Rather than live for, I'll take it. That's not saving faith. Treasuring Christ is not an option. And we have our work of delighting cut out for us. The life that we live in Christ must flow from this all-satisfying Christ. And the life that flows from this soul that lives on Jesus is a life of love and a life of sacrificial service for other people. That's what makes Christ look great. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds. Those are deeds of love. Those are deeds of sacrifice. Those are deeds of counting the treasure in heaven so valuable you can let goods and kindred go and live for others. It's not not watching dirty videos while you sit in your den night after night while everybody goes to hell. Being freed by the treasure that Christ is from all the cravings that make retirement empty and useless such that you lay down your life at age 80 for Muslim people is very counterintuitive to most retirees in America. But when it happens, when that kind of beautiful life happens, it draws people to see the beauty of it 
and its creator, or it convicts people and makes them want to crucify you. Either one. Sometimes Matthew 5.16 happens, and sometimes all the warnings that you will be hated happen. No guarantee that you're doing good deeds will make people like you. It works both ways. Helen quoted the great Polycarp last night. I want to put the story around her quote. Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, experienced both of these. Beautiful life drew people to God. Beautiful life got him killed. Bishop of Smyrna, born 70 A.D., lived to 55 or 56. He's famous for his martyrdom. It's all written up in Bettinson's Documents of the Christian Church. Christians were called atheists in those days because they didn't believe in the Roman gods and they had no shrines and idols of their own. And at one point, a mob cried out, Away with the atheists! Let search be made of Polycarp! He was in a little cottage outside Rome, I mean outside Smyrna. And they went looking for him. He went to another one, and then he decided he would not flee anymore. He had a dream at that cottage in which he saw a burning pillow. And he said in the morning, I must needs be burnt alive. The authorities found him because one of his close associates betrayed him under torture. And they came into the house and it says all that were presented, all that were present marveled at his age and constancy and that there was so much ado about the arrest of such an old man. He asked for permission to pray and prayed for two hours out loud. So filled with the Holy Spirit was he. They took him on a carriage into the city and the sheriff tried to persuade him to deny Christ. Now what harm is there in saying Lord Caesar and in offering incense and thus saving thyself? And he answered, I do not intend to do what you advise. Angered, they hastened him off to the Colosseum, the stadium. And the proconsul there again tried to persuade him to save himself. Have respect to thine age. Swear by the genius of Caesar. Repent. Say, away with the atheists. Polycarp looked up at the crowds of the people sitting in the stadium. And he groaned and said, away with the atheists. And the proconsul said, swear, and I will release thee, curse the Christ. To which Polycarp says, 86 years have I served him, and he hath done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul said, 
Swear by the genius of Caesar. If thou dost vainly imagine, this is Polycarp's answer, if thou dost vainly imagine that I would swear by the genius of Caesar, as thou sayest, pretending I do not know what I am, hear plainly, I am a Christian. The proconsul replied, I have wild beasts. If thou wilt not repent, I will throw you to them. To which Polycarp replied, send for them. For repentance from better to worse is not a change permitted to us. But to change from cruelty to righteousness is a noble thing. The proconsul said, if thou dost despise the wild beasts, I will make thee to be consumed by fire if thou wilt not repent. Polycarp says, Thou threatenest the fire that burns for an hour and in a little while is quenched. For thou knowest not the fire of the judgment to come and the fire of the eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why delayest thou? Bring what thou wilt. The proconsul sent word that they should gather the timber. And as they were about to nail his hands to it so that he would not escape from it, he said, let me be as I am. He that granted me to endure the fire will grant me also to remain in the pyre unmoved without being secured with nails. And so they lit the fire. And he stayed, but he did not die quickly. And the executioner drove a dagger into his chest. And all the multitude marveled at the great difference between the unbelievers and the elect, says the story. When we are so satisfied with Christ, that we are enabled willingly to die for him. We are freed to love people like that. And Christ is shown to be a great treasure. What other explanation would there be? I am 61 years old. Almost the oldest baby boomer. The oldest baby boomer was born in January 1st, 1946, and I was born January 11, 1946. Behind me is coming 78 million baby boomers, ages 43 to 61. Over 10,000 of these baby boomers turn 60 every day. If you read the research, we are an unbelievably self-centered generation. Here's a list. Our likes, working from home, anti-aging supplements, and climate control. Our dislikes, wrinkles, millennial sleeping habits, 
social security, and insecurity. Our hobbies, low-impact sports, Uber parenting, whining and dining. Our hangouts, the farmer's market, tailgating parties, and backyards. And our resources, $2.1 trillion. What will it mean to get old to the glory of God as a baby boomer in America? It will mean a radical break with the mindset of our unbelieving peers. Especially a break with the typical dream of retirement. Ralph Winter is the founder of the U.S. Center for World Missions and is in his early 80s traveling, writing, speaking for the cause of Christ in world missions. He's in the Twin Cities this weekend doing this very thing. He wrote an article on retirement called The Retirement Booby Trap 25 years ago when he was 60, almost 25 years ago. Here's what he said. Most people don't die of old age, they die of retirement. I mean somewhere, I read somewhere that half the men retiring in the state of New York die within two years. Save your life and you will lose it. Just like other drugs, other psychological addictions, retirement is a virulent disease, not a blessing. Where in the Bible do they see that? Did Moses retire? Did Paul retire? Did Peter, John, do military officers retire in the middle of a war? Millions of our fellow citizens, Christians and non-Christians, are finishing their formal careers in their 50s and 60s, and most of them have a good 20 years to go of physical and mental powers before they fail. What will it mean to live those final years to the glory of God? How will we live them in such a way as to make Christ look like our treasure rather than the world looking like our treasure? When I got prostate cancer, um, and had surgery last year. So age 60, kind of a nice round age to get cancer. Um, I recalled almost immediately, because I lectured on this, the story of Charles Simeon. And I prayed, <coughs> God, make this true for me. Here's the story. Simeon was the pastor of uh, Trinity Church, Cambridge, over 200 years ago. And he learned a very painful lesson about retirement. In 1807, 25 years into his ministry, Trinity Church, his health broke. He was 47. He became very weak and had to take an extended leave from his labor. Handley Moole, his biographer, describes what happened 13 years later at age 60. 
The broken condition lasted with variations for 13 years till he was just 60. And then it passed away quite suddenly and without any evident physical cause. He was on his last visit to Scotland in 1819 and found himself, to his great surprise, just as he crossed, crossed the border, almost as perceptibly renewed in strength as the woman was after she touched the hem of the Lord's garment. He says that he had been promising himself before he began to break down a very active life up to 60. And then a Sabbath evening of retirement. And that now he seemed to hear his master saying, I laid you aside because you entertained with satisfaction the thought of resting from your labor. But now you have arrived at the very period when you had promised yourself that satisfaction and you have determined instead to spend your strength for me to the latest hour of your life. I have doubled, trebled, quadrupled your strength that you may execute your desire on a more extended plan. And he did for another 20 years. How many Christians, Christians now, not worldly people, but infected Christians, who, who do respond to one of those 10,000 AARP envelopes? And then read that magazine and hope for that dream. How many tens of thousands of Christians are dreaming of a Sabbath evening? There is a Sabbath. It isn't that. Resting, playing, traveling. The world substitute for heaven. If you don't believe in heaven, you must make a heaven. The typical American life is eternity collapsed into 80 years. There must be heaven. We will make it starting at age 65 or 55. And then we calculate our whole life around how to turn it from a work life to a heaven life. Eternal rest and joy after death await us. For them, it's an irrelevant consideration. Is it for you? When you don't believe in heaven to come, when you're not content in Christ as your treasure, then you will seek a kind of retirement that makes the world look good. It makes the world look like your treasure. It's all you believe in. I must have this. I've earned it. That's a strange reward for a Christian to set his sights on. 20 years of leisure. 
why we live in the midst of the end of the ages, infinite consequences at stake for millions of people who need Christ. What a tragic way to finish the last mile before you meet the king who finished his last mile so differently. I had the awesome privilege, 1992, to hear while I was in Chicago that J. Oswald Sanders was going to be speaking. Age 89 at Trinity Divinity School said, I'll cross an ocean to hear this probably last talk. He did die later that year. And one of the things he said filled me with longing. He said, I have written a book a year since I was 70. 19 books after 70. And everything in me said, Oh God, don't let me waste my last chapter. Don't let me buy the American dream of retirement, endless leisure, play, hobbies, putzing around in the garage, rearranging the furniture, golfing, fishing, sitting, watching television. Lord, have mercy on me and spare me this curse. So... I conclude with this prayer for you, you, a passion and a promise, and we're done. May the Lord grant you to be kissed by both. The Passion, Psalm 71, 18, even to old age and to gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me. Until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to those who are to come. A passion to make God look great as you die. And the promises from Isaiah 46, 3. You have been born by me. From before your birth, John Piper, fill in the blank. You have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to old age and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have born and I will carry. I have, I will carry and will save. So don't be afraid, Christian. You will make it. You will make it. You don't need to be afraid. We should be the most bold, courageous, fearless, sacrificial lovers on the planet. You will make it. You will persevere. So you don't need this world. You don't need to surround yourself with endless securities and, and comforts. That's not what life is for. We are moving toward need in our last chapter, not toward comfort. Break it!
sell it. I will not be deceived. Though a 10,000 people tell me to buy this, I won't buy it. May the Lord give you liberty from the illusion of heaven on earth. You are as secure in Christ as Christ is righteous and God is just. Don't settle for anything less than the joyful sorrows of magnifying Christ in the sacrifices of love. I'll say that again. Don't settle for anything less than the joyful sorrows of magnifying Christ in the sacrifices of love. And then, in the last day, you will stand and hear the words, well done, good, and faith-filled servant. Father, I pray that we would be free for freedom Christ has set us free. Don't let us be suckers for the dream that eliminates you or makes you a comma after the first installment of heaven. Jesus, you're the only one. I just want to pray that across this congregation right now, whether we're talking teenagers or people in their 90s, that we would treasure Christ above all things, not just up to 65, but treasure him more than all the comforts and all the securities and all the leisure and all the games after 65. I pray that millions and millions of baby boomers would finish radically well to the glory of Jesus.